when I hear the word home, I think of a dorm settled on 45 acres in Tampa Bay, Florida with 35 other kids, five other girls in the room with me. I think of gross food that one eats at an institution like a children's home. But I think of that was the time when I was loved for who I was, not for what I did or what I could bring to the table. And now for the next episode of Letters from Home, sending encouragement to your doorstep by capturing the heartbeat of God's people one story at a time. Hi, it's Meg Gleesner, your host. I was wondering, can you imagine what it would be like to sleep in a bed for the first time at age 10? Could you imagine only feeling loved for the first time as a teenager with 35 other children in a foster home? What would life in that home be like? And what trauma would you have been through to get to that point? Our guest will bring us there and will share how she has and is overcoming her very difficult childhood trauma and PTSD, how Jesus saved her and has become the hero of her story. Prepare to be encouraged as you hear the faith of the everyday extraordinary Amy Watson. Amy Watson, you inspire me so much. I love you, Amy, and I'm just so honored that we get to step into your story a little bit. I'm excited to finally be here. One knows that they have made it when you're on the Letters from Home podcast. Nobody's ever said that. That's so sweet of you to say. I feel honored that your story would be one of the letters on Letters from Home that will encourage so many. I know it well. Start us off. Where were you born? Where were you raised? So I have always lived in Florida, born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. Went to college in Clearwater and Tampa Bay area, which is where I live now. Good old Florida girl. I'm proud of it. That's awesome. So can you bring us into your home growing up? What was it like to be little Amy Watson? Yeah, wow. Never never been asked the question framed like that. I love it. You know, I don't have, and this will make sense. So listeners, you're going to need to hang with us. But, but I don't have context of what how that question should be answered. It's very interestingly phrased. What did my home look like? You know, I don't ever remember feeling like I was at home, having a home. Now, certainly I had four walls and a roof most times to live under, but my very, very earliest memories are of no caretakers, absent parents, really taking care of myself. And so what it looked like in our home, I have a sister who is three years older than than I am. It looked like two kids who were born to a mom who should not have been having kids, but she did and did not take care of us. And so from a very early on, the way it looked in our home was we were the parents. We took care of ourselves. If we ate, we did so because we earned the money to do that. Like even at age five or six, like even as a really little, little kid, you had to go earn money? Yeah. So I can remember Meg at seven years old, which is one of my first memories. So I was seven, my sister was 10, and and I was peddling boiled peanuts on the street for 35 cents a bag and would bring the money home to the person who called herself my mom after I took a little off the top to get me a, back then it was an RC Cola and some some Cheetos and some lemon heads. I just, Meg, I just found some lemon heads. I had not been able to find them for years. I love that. So if you were to walk into our home now, I think of myself as an adult, Amy, if I were to walk into that place that we called home now, I would jerk little Amy and little Lisa, who is my sister, out of there because it wasn't a home. So what did the inside of my home look like? It looked like a war zone. 
it was a place where we were locked in rooms and not fed and physically abused and not protected. Sorry you went through that with your mom and just really even dealing with abuse and that kind of stuff. I'd love to know, how, how did you deal with that as a little girl? Were you just, this is normal, and then all of a sudden you got put in a foster care system? What, what was that like? Yeah, so we just continued, Lisa, my sister and I continued to live that life. And we were, and it was a bad life. There was lots of abuse. But by the time the last abuse came, I went to church and told my pastor's wife what was happening at home. And they, of course, stepped in. And so for all of those people who did not get spoken up for that received abuse inside the church, I'm so sorry for those people because that wasn't my story. So when I told my pastor's wife what was going on at home, they called the authorities and the authorities said, well, I mean, it was on a Sunday night because this was back in the day when you went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, youth group, all of it. And so it was a Sunday night. And so the state of Florida said to my pastor and his wife, can y'all just keep her for the day or for the night? Y'all, that's a nice Southern word for those of you who are listening from the West Coast. They said, can you guys just keep her, <laughs> can, can you guys just keep her for the night? And they did. And that night turned into 18 months. And it turned into 18 months. How old were you the night that? 14. So you were 14 when a big change precipitated? Yeah. So, and I could tell you what that big change and the reason why that night turned into 18 months was because the state of Florida said to my mom, this is how bad the foster care system was then and continues to be now. They said to her, clearly someone who did not need to be a mom. And I had stories to back it up, stuff, stuff that happened before that that she did to us. But they told her, if you make your boyfriend leave, who was the offender, we will bring Amy back to you. You can have her back. We, we, we find you fit, which is terrifying to me. We find you fit. We'll bring her back. And so my foster parents said to me, hey, your mom wants you back. It would have been the first time in my memory that she ever would have actually chosen me. I, I remember that feeling, Meg, of, wow, I'm wanted and loved by my own mom. And it was the first time that I felt that way. And so we packed my stuff up in a little plastic bag and they carted me across town to home, if you will, uh, if that's what we want to call it. And I didn't even get out of the car. The social, I remember it was like a station wagon and there were two social workers in the front, one in the back with me and then me. And we pulled up and I saw a note on the door and I knew, I knew that she had not in fact chosen me. Didn't even get out of the car. They took the note off the door and I glanced at it and basically it said, not basically, this is what it said, gone to get married, mom. And so she married that man, well, they, of course, took me straight to the courthouse where I remember standing in that courthouse and I watched the judge sign away my mom's rights. And so I was in the foster care system for 18 months. I was very, very fortunate in that my pastor and his wife kept me. I was never actually in the system. While technically they were my foster parents, I was never in the system that we hear so much of where kids bounce around from place to place to place. After that 18 months, they had three they, they, they had three kids of their own, pastor in a pretty good-sized church. School was involved there as well. They just could not handle really what life had done to me. Wasn't a bad kid, but I needed a lot of attention. And when I didn't get it, I did what I needed to do to get it. Our church supported a children's home at the time. So we went to visit this children's home in Tampa just barely a few days after my freshman year in high school. They 
packed me and my stuff up in a car. We drove to Tampa and they dropped me off at Faith Children's Home, which is where I spent all of my high school years and some of my college years. And I tell people all the time it was the best years of my life. Wow. That's encouraging. So young Amy, you're with just your sister and your mom. And then this terrible boyfriend gets introduced and can only imagine the kind of things that happen to a little girl. But what did it feel like when you did get put in the system for those 18 months? What was that transition like? Because really, you didn't have any sense of what home was. You didn't have any sense of a mother's love. And then to have that final moment of choosing and she didn't choose you and you knew what was going on as you you go from that environment to your new environment yeah so it's 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 hard to and you can tell i can't even look at you when i'm telling you this part of the story and and this is this is this is not a part that i've i've mentioned on many podcasts besides my own it's hard to articulate what it felt like standing there watching an old white man tell me that I don't belong to the person who birthed me anymore. Because for as ill-equipped as she was, and you bring up a really good point, and it could be a whole another podcast, what happened to her, right? To, to make her not, not nurturing and, and not, not a good mom. But, I, but, but that initial rejection, because I have an extraordinary measure of wanting to be loved and wanting to be wanted, and I was neither of those things by the person who brought me onto the planet. So that was really, really hard. And I think part of the reason why my foster parents, who I'd like to give a shout out to, Ray and Gail Dunning, Ray, Ray is with the Lord, but Gail is, is still with us. And as a matter of fact, as the Lord would have it in a, in a redemption story, their son works for me. So it's it's just very cool. Praise the Lord. After that initial rejection, I really leaned into living in that home, that that foster home for 18 months. I loved them. I asked them if I can call them mom and dad, and they told me no, and I was shattered. Why? No idea. I don't know if they didn't want me to connect with them or what, but oh, and and this 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 gets into an interesting dynamic when you talk about foster care too, because when then they put me in the children's home and I did great in the children's home, and then they didn't like that either, right? Because they wanted to be the hero of the story, and I don't care if they hear this podcast, I'll tell them that to their face. They wanted to be the hero <laughs> of the story. I'm grateful that I went to the children's home because I believe that it absolutely altered the course of my life forever. But, but I think it was another rejection when they dropped me off at the children's home. And I have both written and talked about that at length because it's a memory that is so, so deeply ingrained in, into my brain. I just was rejected again. But, but let's go back for a second. When I first went into their home after the initial shock of what my mom had done, I felt loved. I had a bed for the first time, my own bed for the first time. I had food. You didn't have a bed before? We didn't have a bed and we didn't have food. We were locked in a room. Um, again, not a place, not not something I share on a lot of podcasts. We were locked in a room good portions of the day with a padlock on the outside with food withheld and basic water and all the things. And so when I went to live with the Dunnings, my foster parents, I felt like I got a new lease on life. This, you know, I think... I could actually remember exactly what I thought. Well, that really sucks that my mom didn't want me, but boy, am I going to f fight my way into these people's hearts and they're not going to leave me. And, you know, they bought me a bed and school supplies. And, and when I came home with a 99.9 .9 on a quiz, they, they, they really 
you know, did the things that parents do, as I would know now as a 49-year-old adult that I would not know as a 14-year-old. I had done well in school my entire life and had never been given an girl for it. They loved it. And so to answer your question, those 18 months were like, I was like, you know what? My mom doesn't love me. That That's fine. These people do. I'm going to move on. And then came the hammer. We, we're not equipped mm-hmm. to to take care of you. And when I tell you I'm not a bad kid, the worst thing I did, Meg, was lie. So no drugs. Right. No rock, and not even music with drums, because those were back in the days when Sandy Patty, if you listen to Sandy Patty, that was pushing it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was a good kid. Have you talked to them since? Why they said they didn't feel they were equipped to handle you? We all hear these stories with foster care, and those seem so mild. I think it's a decision they wish they had back. Because they, as I be, mm. as I got to the children's home, and as I began to thrive there, they they became very resentful of how much I thrived once I got to the children's home. I don't think they were like, let's mm. put this kid in the children's home and watch her fail. But I think they were like, hmm, what are they doing that we didn't do? And really, all right. it was was, can you imagine? Like they were able to give me the attention I needed with thirty six other kids, and this foster home could not with three other kids. And so those transitions still very much live with me today. Big time fear of abandonment. I've got, you know, a lot of friends who I'm close to, but I'm always afraid he's going to leave or die or, or something, because why wouldn't I believe that? Because that's all that, that had been my experience. So, so those, those, those transitions were difficult because it's very difficult not to tie that back to what's wrong with me. Why don't they want me? And then conversely, when I was in the children's home is, why do they love me? I'm awesome. I'm great. And then I became a big performer, which has its own problems. When I hear the word home, I think of a dorm settled on 45 acres in Tampa Bay, Florida with 35 other kids, five other girls in the room with me. I think of gross food that one eats at an institution like a children's home. But I think of that was the time when I was loved for who I was, not for what I did or, or, or what I could bring to the table. While the journey to getting there and getting a context for home, I would not wish on my worst enemy. I will always be grateful for Mom and Dad McGowan, who are still alive, by the way. Dad is 93. Mom McGowan probably turns 90 this year, actually. And uh, I still get text messages from her, and she will be 90 soon. Wow. So those transitions were hard, but the one to the children's home really absolutely saved me. Wow. How old were you when you joined McGowan Home? 14. Bring us into what it's like being in a home with 36 kids. What is the routine like? Uh, here's the wing for the teenage girls. What are the meals like? How do people get to school? What are the parents doing? <laughs> what a great question and a question never asked me. You're a f- fantastic question asker. Is that a word? So, so the girls dorm had 18 girls with three bedrooms and little, middle and big. And so obviously I was in the big girl's room because I was a teenager and the big girl's room, we had our own little bathroom, which is just a little bit bigger than this makeshift podcast studio that I'm sitting in right now. But we had, we all had a twin bed, a dresser, a closet, obviously, and some shelves where we could put our stuff because they wanted us to have some sort of identity. And we were only allowed to watch TV every, you know, like once a week or something. I remember being able to watch the Cosby show and some sports and things like that. 
But yeah, we did life together. They rang a cowbell when it was time to eat. We all ate together. So the dining room was this big room with four or five different long tables on it. The food was disgusting. Hey, you can't win them all. <laughs> no, exactly. I still have food issues to, to this day because of the children's home. But the reason why the food wasn't great was because they started in 1968 and to this day have not purchased a single piece of food. Wow. They are not supported by state or local government, period. They are solely supported and by donors. Wow. And so we would get day-old bread, day-old donuts, milk that was a little eh, and, and stuff like that. So the food wasn't great. But we had house parents who we called aunts and uncles. And uh, we ran through house parents because it was a very hard job. The founders of the home, Dr. Lindy McGowan and his wife, Jackie, we called mom and dad McGowan. And one of the coolest things, and this is probably why this experience was so amazing for me, was the way we got support was we traveled three out of the four weekends of the month and then eight weeks in the summer and 10 days in the spring, got on a Greyhound bus and sang in churches every single night. And when I say I sang, I mean, I mouth because I can't sing. We stayed in the homes of people. You could not do this now, right? We stayed in the homes of the people in the churches. When you have dinner on the grounds at church, mm -hmm. they bring it. Oh, I mean, they, yep. like, you don't want to check, check your cholesterol or do any of the things <laughs> after you eat. And, and so by the time we got home after eight weeks, you know, we had had more macaroni and cheese and ham and fried chicken and all the things. But that was really amazing. Got to see a good portion of the country doing that. What's on the side of the bus, Amy? And what are you called? So when they say so-and-so's coming, is it the glorious McGowan family uh, is coming? Or what, what, what is it called? Like, I love this. Back then it was called Faith Children's Home. Now it's called um, Hope International Ministries because they have a couple different homes. But there were three at that point. But the home, the home I was in was in Tampa. It was called Faith Children's Home. And that's what it said on the side. Okay. So you can imagine. So you're a mom of eight, right? Yep. <laughs> Your kids seem pretty near perfect, but. <laughs> you can imagine how teenagers felt getting off of that bus at places like rest stops and gas stations that said children's home. It was like, hey, welcome. Here's a bunch of orphans. But the bus was awesome. And it was an amazing experience traveling and singing like that. I really believe that that's where I got my love for speaking because I was always behind a microphone. And we went to school on the property. So the property was uh, the school was on property and it was called Hope Christian School. You're going to laugh when I tell you this because you know enough about me. So I got there at the end of my freshman year. So I had three years of high school left and I was 14 years old. And the curriculum they had is a curriculum that's still out there. They're not not widely used anymore called Accelerated Christian Education. And it was basically paces and you taught yourself. Hmm. Well, Meg, when I tell you that I started my sophomore year, I was 14 and a half. By the end of that year, I had completed every pace that I needed to graduate from high school. Wow. So they were all looking like, um, she's 15. We can't just like send her on down the road. So what do we do now? We can't graduate you from high school in one year. Just credit. <laughs> yeah, we can. And, and this is before dual credit and all the things, right? And so we went to school on property. And so what ended up happening was I ended up becoming a teacher's aide. And I should air quote when I say that, because really what I ended up doing was teaching, which ironically enough, I have done plenty of in my life. I have a minor in education. Christmases. Oh, Christmases were amazing. Oh, it's a big tree, right? A big tree. And as a lady who now has a tree farm. 
<laughs> right, Amy? <laughs> but that, that's right. But yeah, so what would happen was, was from December 1st, what hap- happens to be my birthday, to December 24th, which is, which is uh, Christmas Eve, we would have five or six different groups of kids that went around to offices and churches and stuff like that and sang Christmas carols. Well, they gave us presents. Every one of them, we would have like industrial size bags of presents on Christmas Eve to open. And this was notwithstanding the ones that we had already opened when we went to these parties. Christmas was amazing there. And so I just was loved very, very well there. Mom McGowan just took a lot of interest in me. One of the first people that I remember telling me that she loved me. It was just an amazing experience. And so once I turned 18 and was could go to college. I got a full ride scholarship to Clearwater Christian College, which I went to and also loved. Oh, I love hearing hearing about the joy in the home. I'm just picturing those shelves. How full were those shelves after Christmas? You guys had to be like, oh, your shelf's getting on my shelf now. <laughs> yeah, and we all collected something. What were the responsibilities in the heart, home? I know as a big family, we have like a little job, a job chart list and those kind of, we have a laundry, your night is this night. So what did it look like? Some of those dynamics of the home. Exactly that. Yeah. So every Sunday they would put out the, every week it would come out, you know, the, the, the list would come out because you can imagine with that many kids, you clean the bathrooms every day, you vacuum every day. The thing that you didn't want to be, it was on kitchen duty. And so it was funny because not to. Not yeah, to, that's what I was going to say. Who who did all those dishes? Yeah. Kebab, that's And cleaned up the food that went rotten before people could use it, right? Yeah, that was us. A lot of the staff leaned on me to help with the, the younger kids. And I was responsible to do that. And, and unlike a lot of the kids that were there because of behavior problems, I wasn't. I was just there simply because I didn't have a family. And so, um, so I got to, to hang out with the little kids and teach them their multiplication tables and, and all the stuff, you know, I just loved that. And then worked in the office after they didn't know what to do with me. I mean, I literally was done with high school at 15 years old. That's incredible. So what was the age range then? How young did they have them there? The kids? Oh, Meg, we had, we had an 18 month old baby there who we had babies who, who, oh. who looked like maybe he was six months old because he had only been given like fresh Aww. milk. His teeth were rotted out, the ones that were coming in and all the things. And so, yeah, it ranged from from that young all the way up to high school. And did you have any sense of, of mom and dad's, how they work things out, any conversations you got to witness with them? I'm just thinking like as a parent and trying to manage 36 humans and take care of them. How do they handle things? And what about with all those kids and all those situations? What were some of the the things that came up that you saw as some of the bigger issues that had to be worked through in the home? Lots of issues, unfortunately. And this is way more mainstream now than it was, gosh, this was 1987 when I went there. Um, lots of issues with the boys as it pertains to many of them had been sexually abused. And so there's a lot of behaviors, unfortunately, that go along with that, including repeating that behavior. So a little bit of that. And that is not something that I like to talk about a lot, but it's a good question. And it's an important question for those of you out there who even in Christian institutions think that these things don't happen. And so that was a big glaring issue. Another big glaring issue was we had a couple of kids who attempted to complete suicide because, you know, we were all there under just such not good circumstances. And for some of us, when when the Lord was entered into the equation, because this is a Christian children's home, 
when God was entered into the equation. For some of us, we grabbed onto that. Others wanted nothing to do with a God that put them there. And so there are quite a few of those big behavior issues. Once a month, if the kids had parents, they got to go home. Many times they would bring stuff back into the facility that, that wasn't allowed there, like drugs. And there there wasn't a lot of stability from who we call the house parents, who we called aunts and uncles, because, I mean, it was just a 24-7 job and they had their own kids. They were strict with us. There was no doubt about that, and as you have to be when you have 36 kids. But my experience there was 99.9% positive the end. Praise the Lord. What a gift. They loved me, and I garnered a full-ride scholarship to college as a result of making a decision as a young child to to just do the right thing, you know? And, and so I had an opportunity really to feed into the lives of those kids, and that meant the world to me. Have you heard from any of those kids? Because, you know, there's the 7, 8, you know, the 15-year-old, the 12. Wow, Amy's going to college. Like, I hear from them all the time now. It's funny because there's there's quite a few of them that, that we hang out together. They all like to pick on me. We get together now and they all still call me a goody two-shoes and all the things. But the, uh, the, the, tr- <laughs> the truth of the matter is, is that I all I wanted was to be seen, known, loved, heard, and valued. And all of those things were happening for me. And so that created a fertile ground for me to heal. I'm so glad. And Amy, I know there's a faith element in your story. What did it look like when you said you were introduced to the Lord and you went to church? Yeah, I'd love to bring you there. My favorite subject, as you know. So this was before the children's home and I was about 10 years old and um, I was at a friend's house and we heard a knock at the door. We just ran and answered the door. And on the other side of that door was a what I used to describe as an older man and an older woman. In the reality, they were probably our age now, so not old at all. Yep, we're young. Yeah, we're young. <laughs> they knocked on the door and they said, hey, we're we're Brother Don and, and Sister Mary Lou, actually their names. And um, we are from Victory Baptist Church and we have a church bus that comes and brings kids to school. We have candy. Do you want to go? And um, we were like, you got candy? Yeah, we're going. I got on that hot yellow school bus and I was introduced to the possibility of having an unconditional love with my Jesus. And I was all and even at 10 years old, Sunday mornings turned into Sunday nights and turned into Wednesday nights, turned into Thursday night youth group, turned into retreats, turned into summer camps. And Jesus was just everything to me. I was on fire. I was the kid that went to youth camp and they would they would pull me up there to help them fire everybody else on. I love back then and even now some Jesus because he is my everything. I, I, I think somehow I recognize that there was no way to make it through. And this is true to this day. He is the only one who has never left me, who has never forsaken me, and who is always there. And so my relationship with, with the Lord and my faith element came very early. Now, with that, and, and, and some more of what I will share with you, comes some great confusion. Because when you, when you love the God of the universe who could do whatever he wants, who could have stopped where, whatever he wanted to do in my life, the, the fact of the matter is there had been seven abusers in my life before that day that I went to church that night. And that's just sexual abuse. That's not even physical abuse. And so later in life, like now-ish, it does uh, make one sit in in the tension of, if you believe that Jesus is the star of your story, and I do, how then can you say that if he is everywhere, he is, the Bible tells us that he is everywhere that he's never changing, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful. And there's a bunch of big words for those that we could throw out and people may or may not know what we're talking about. But the reality is, is that God could have stopped it, but he didn't. And so 
that was when I was ten when I was ten years old. So thirty nine years ago, I had my first introduction to the possibility of having a relationship with the one and only God of the universe. And that is where my 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 faith started. I believe that my profession of faith came somewhere between the ages of ten and fifteen. As some of your listeners of their Gen Xers are going, I, you and I were teasing. Um, and this may not be your experience, but if you grew up in church and you're a Gen Xer, they it was hellfire and brimstone all the time. And um, and and so we never, you know. So I I remember going to bed often at night. Lord, if I'm not saved, save me. But I do remember a time when I was 15 years old. And everybody was shocked because we were singing in this Methodist church in South Carolina and they, they did an altar call. And I just felt this prick of my heart. Like you're a good kid. You're a good person. You're not bitter. You're not angry. You're not resentful or any things that you should be, but you're also not a Christian yet. And so I remember leaving the choir loft and, and I, and I was responsible for the little kids. So the little kids were sitting or, or on the front row and I'm standing next to them um, and went down and mom McGowan came and she said, what's going on? And I said, I, I think I need to give my life to Jesus. And she tried not to look shocked, but she was shocked. And, and when I was 15 years old, I prayed that prayer. And, um, I think that is when I actually made the transaction of repenting of my own sin and, and, and knowing that that was my, that, that, that Jesus, as the Bible tells us, is the only way to the father. And so I, I believe that like at 15 years old is when, is when, when I made that profession of faith. What did, uh, Mom McGowan say she, you know, it was funny because she just really re just kind of after the shock wore off and, you know, we're talking a couple seconds, right? She just said, okay. She said, do you need me to show you in the Bible? I was like, no, I could show it to you. I just feel like I, I need to pray this. I mean, I knew the Romans wrote, I knew all the things I taught it, you know, to the little kids, but something told me that I, I was just, just kind of living off of the laurels of what I knew. You know, I could tell you, the books of the Bible and where and when and how often to what extent, but I, I could not I could not pinpoint a time besides the being afraid of the hellfire and brimstone preaching that I'd actually made that that transaction of repentance uh, with Jesus. What kind of changes happened for you at home, and did you see any kind of ripple effect amongst the wing of the big middle small girls? <laughs> so I do think that there was some. Some kids that looked at me and was were like, "There's something there," but I am sad to report to you that probably nine out of ten of kids at that children's home are not walking in faith today. Yeah, but they were so harmed before they got there that I had a couple of them on my own podcast recently, and um, and they're really journeying themselves back to God, and that that was a cool experience to talk about. Their, their trauma on my podcast and, 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 and then to get a text from them, Hey, we went to church. Hey, we signed up for counseling. And so there is a, there is a, a group of kids around my age that I still have contact with think. And so it's been really fun to watch them come back to the faith. And then you said, you know, your life then took another turn after that. It must've been, you were at the college at the dorms and stuff. So you had left your home of love and safety and ventured out. Uh, did you have a roommate or were you just kind of on your own, just trying to figure that out? Yeah. So another really happy transition. Well, I say another, like we've had a ton of happy transitions. We really haven't had many happy transitions yet, but the first two years, part of the full ride scholarship that I got was if I worked at the children's home. And so the first two years I worked there and stayed there, which is really, really, really good for me because it meant that I didn't, I didn't turn 18 
I was, you know, my, my dad died when I was seven years old. And so the children's home had been saving my social security checks. And so literally when I graduated from high school, they handed me a sizable check that I probably in world record time spent because again, when you know better, you do better, or they help the kids better with this now, but there was no teaching us of how to handle money or any of that stuff. But after two years of that, I wanted to have, and I'm air quoting when I say this, the college experience. And so I resigned from the children's home and moved on to campus at Clearwater Christian College my junior year in college. Oh my word, how much fun that was. We were, it was just good. It was, it was a Christian college. We were good kids. I was a proctor. But by the time my senior year came around, I was amassing quite a bit of student debt and stuff like that. And so I moved off campus and, and with a friend of mine later, you know, kind of towards the end of my senior year and my college is closed now, so they can't take my degree from me when I tell you this part of the story. But we all discovered alcohol, you know, in my senior year of college, and we didn't go crazy with it. And as a matter of fact, a bunch of my friends got kicked out of school because they got caught at a bar one night, and I just had the good sense not to go. It was April, and we graduated in May, and they all didn't get to graduate. So I got church hurt, if you will, around that time. 22 years old and thought I knew everything. And so when I graduated from college, I thought organic chemistry was going to take me down. My degree is in pre-med and I waited to take organic chem until my senior year. Thought it was going to take me out when they came to to pull all the kids from from graduation practice because they didn't pass their core classes. I was sure I was going to be in that group, but I wasn't. I think I made a C in organic chem. So graduated from college and uh, had decided I was done with, with this side of Florida and I was going home. And there's a reason why they say you can't go home. So by then, whew, this is where it might get emotional. Um, so there had been a no contact order by the state of Florida. Um, my mom was not allowed to contact me until I was 18 years old. Now, I turned 18 in the middle of my senior year, again, air quoting. Um, the children's home was not going to let me leave until I actually graduated, which happened that June. And um, my mom came to my graduation. That was the first time I saw her since getting on the bus to go to church that Sunday night and telling my pastor's wife. We just kind of glossed over it as we do. Uh, she was very ill at the time. My mom was 38 when she had me. So I'm, I'm 18 at, at my high school graduation. And so she's, she's not young, um, not old, but not, not young. And um, so that whole, so then I went and spent a couple of weeks with she and my sister in Jacksonville and we didn't talk about anything. We just, I can't even explain it to you. Just kind of, bleh. Just whatever, you know, we didn't talk about any anything. But October of my freshman year of college, um, she got very sick. And I got a phone call from my sister and said, you need to come up. She's not going to make it. And um, so I did. I drove, I had to rent a car and drove up to see her. And she was on a ventilator at the time. And um, they said, guys, the doctor said to, to us and and we were 19 and 21, respectively. I just turned 19. This was December or October. No, I was 18. I turned 19 that following December. They said, um, she's not going to make it. And um, she doesn't basically doesn't have an insurance, doesn't have anybody to pay. She has a DNR. Um, but we need you guys to sign papers to unplug the machine. And... Um, we didn't know what to do. My mom had a brother who is my uncle Lloyd, who is 
I, I loved more than life. And it's probably another reason why I'm alive on this planet. But he was dying of cancer at the time. So it was just us. And so I remember looking at the doctor and um, I was a pre-med student. And I, I was like, there's nothing you can do. What about this, 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 and this? And he looked at me like, how do you know that? First of all, I'm like, I wanted to be a doctor since watching emergency when I was eight years old. I just I always wanted to be a doctor. And he said, no, she'll not make it through this. And so, um, so I said, I'm not ready to sign the papers. And this was October. I went back to school. And um, December 12th of 1990, um, no cell phones. So my sister had to call the school office who put a note in my mailbox. I then went across campus, got on a payphone, and called my sister. And she said, she's not going to make it. You need to get here. Um, and they want us to sign those papers. And so I was, again, not even old enough to rent a car. And um, they um, finally found somebody to rent that would rent me a car in the middle of the night. Um, got up there, signed the papers, and um, walked out of the room and said, can you not take her off the ventilator until I can spend the night with her? And they said, yeah, we can do that. And I spent all night in that hospital room, ironically, the same hospital I was born in. Mm. And I could stand at the at her hospital or ICU hospital room and look out over the city of Jacksonville where I'd grown up. And if I walked outside, I could smell the coffee from the Maxwell House um, plant that's Jacksonville so famous for. And I just remember looking at her chest rising and falling from that ventilator. Um, I looked down. She had tubes coming out of everywhere. She had one hand that was unattached to anything. And I remember thinking I should grab it, but I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. I just wanted to know why, why, from my earliest memories, from locking me in a room to allowing her husband to beat us so badly that one time when he, when he did so, he put a washcloth in her mouth and said, I'm doing this because the neighbors called the Department of Children and Services on us. And so they won't be able to hear you scream. And all seven abusers, um, including a, a well-known serial killer, I remember standing in our hospital room that night saying, why? Like, why don't you love me? I'm your, I didn't ask you to bring me into this world. You have placed me into an unkind world with an unkind upbringing. Why? So I never could grab her hand. I had an early class the next day to be at, and um, Jacksonville's about three hours, three and a half hours from from Clearwater. So I stayed up all night, standing at that window, wrapped in blankets because it was freezing in the IC room, ICU room, and um, talked to the air. She certainly wasn't listening, and um, signed the papers on my way out. And um, she lived for fifty minutes off of the ventilator. And again, at 19 and 21, I might have had $20 in my checking account. All my credit cards were maxed out. My sister had two young children. Neither one of us had money to bury her to cremate her or to do anything. We're like, there's got to be somebody that can help us with this. She had another brother up in Baltimore who flew down and, and did all of that. But so that was that was tough. And I went back to school and then had that beautiful college experience that I just told you about. But that was hard. And I lived for a long time in a lot of regret. And when I say a long time, I'm talking up until the last couple of years. 
with a lot of regret that I didn't grab her hand, that I didn't tell her that I had forgiven her, um, that I didn't just do something with that one year that I had with her. Still very, very difficult for me to reconcile that and something that I still deal with in counseling. She died, went back to school, had that beautiful college experience, but you fast forward to my senior year in college and I, and, and like I said, I moved off campus. I, I, to this day, I mean, I've got alcohol in my freezer that's probably gone bad. I'm just not a drinker and wasn't then, but, but got introduced to alcohol a little bit my senior year, got hurt at church, decided I was never going back to church, moved back home. And this is where the left turn comes. You can't go back home because your friends aren't there. All my friends have gone away to college and gotten married and all the things. So one night I'm at my sister's house and babysitting my niece and nephew on a Saturday night, bored to death because there was nothing to do. Now that's a dream to have a Saturday night with nothing to do, but not when you're 22 years old. So I went and got a phone book. Now, for you younger listeners who don't know what a phone book is, that is a big book that we all used to get with everybody's phone numbers in them. I worked at the Yellow Pages with my mom. So I guess the Yellow Pages, nobody knows what that's about. Phone books. books. (laughs) And so I, I fast forwarded to the part that said dating services and there was a single, you know, a, a phone singles line. Anyway, to make a very long story short, I met somebody on there who claimed to be a Christian and we dated for about six to eight months before I violated everything that I said I would never do. Moved in with him. The first time he hit me, Meg, was about six months before I married him. And that first hit was the first of 12 years. And so, and that was in 1997 and 2007, after 12 years of being in that abusive marriage in Alla Church and away from God or anybody having anything to do with God, I left him. And then that ushered in a brand new season, which was not a left turn, but was a, but was an important season. And so not only am I a survivor of childhood abuse, neglect, and abandonment, I am a survivor of 12 years of domestic violence. And I will always say, and if listeners out there, if you just want to be known and seen and loved and heard and valued, be careful where you look for it. Because I lost a decade plus of my life staying in that marriage because I just wanted to be seen, known, loved, heard, and valued. But getting absolutely brutally beat for 12 years. And that's notwithstanding the the emotional and all the other stuff that goes with domestic violence. Amy, what was the turning point for you to be able to get out of that? And what would you say to somebody who's stuck in that kind of a situation right now? The first thing that I'd like to say to the, those people is I'm, I'm so sorry. That pain cannot be articulated. So the first thing I want to say to you, if you're in a situation or if you've been in a situation where you've been domestically abused or child abuse even, is that I'm so sorry. The turning point came for me, and here's a bit of a trigger warning if you are one of those people, is he basically just punched me in the face one time. Blood went everywhere. We had this. We were living in this house on St. Augustine Beach, beautiful white carpet, and my blood was everywhere. Uh, uh, he left the room, and blood is still going everywhere. I immediately got in my car and went to Publix, which is a grocery store here to get some resolve to get the blood out of the carpet. And en route to that, I had to stop at a stoplight, which was right beside a church, Anastasia Baptist Church in St. Augustine, Florida. I remember thinking, well, I can give that a try because I'm not going to live much longer like this. And so I went to the store and got the resolve and got the blood out. And that next Sunday, I went to church 
and I could talk about this for a whole nother podcast, but basically God's people stood up, a bunch of God's women. I joined a group. I was 32. I joined a life group called Titus 2. And for those of you who aren't believers who are maybe not, don't know what that scripture is, that that, that scripture is basically older women and men mentoring younger women and men. And there was a group of women in that group that I could tell them about my domestic violence. I could tell them what was going on at home. And they loved me back to life by pushing me to the throne of Jesus and then be in his hands and feet. I'm so grateful that I'm, you had somebody that you could talk to. And I'm so sorry that, I mean, I can't even imagine going through that for 12 years and all, all that you've been through. And then also you had said church hurt on top of that. How was the pain so great that you just didn't, care about whatever had offended you younger in your faith? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's something about Jesus that sticks, right? And so his people can screw his reputation up all they want, but he never changes. And I remembered those days. I remember that day I went to church and told my pastor's wife, I remembered, I remembered so many days where he was in fact there for me. And, and that punch in the face was not the worst abuse, but it was just like, something's got to change. And there was a significant, the, the worst abuse happened after that. And, and, but I had people at that point. And I talk about it all the time on my podcast about the importance of community. If you're out there and you are living in a domestic violence situation, besides saying, I'm so sorry, I want you to know that I understand that it's not as easy as just leaving. And I understand how mad it makes you when people go, why do you stay? I understand that that feels like an indictment to you. And while I'm not a professional, I'm sure Meg will put into her show notes how you can get a hold of me. I have got resources that I can give you. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you are, if you love somebody out there who is in a domestic violence situation, can I be so brazen as to beg you not to say, why did you stay? Why are you staying? Don't you think better of yourself? There's lots of ways to help them. That is not one of them. And I'm happy to share with that anybody offline because every situation is different or point you to somebody that can. But the church hurt. I don't even remember what it was, but I know it kept me out of church for a decade. And I f firmly believe that I wouldn't have made the decision to marry him that I made had I been under the authority of the local church. What happened with him? And where did you go from there? You're asking some hard questions and I love it. What happened to him? So I left him. I had I actually literally left the country because that's how dangerous he was. The last thing that happened was a, another trigger warning was a gun to my head. He pulled the, the trigger and either there was no ammunition in the gun or it jammed. So then I left, left, left after that. So I think that God's people at that point came came before me. But then most of the time when you leave these domestic violence situations, especially when you leave like I did two and a half hours away, it 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 kind of calms down and the divorce gets final and all of that. None of that happened. I had to get a lifetime restraining order against him. One year after I left him, I ended up in a psych ward with a complete nervous breakdown. And while I was in the hospital, he was sending me emails with death threats and all the things. And so I, I had a, a lifetime restraining order against him. About five years ago, and I know it's five years ago because I have, I remember it was when Peyton Manning uh, retired from football. He died of a drug overdose all by himself in a hotel room with a needle in his arm. 
And fewer things in my life have made me sadder than that. That was a very difficult time in my life. And then just three years later, his son, Kevin, who was my stepson and the only child I ever had because I couldn't have my own, also died of a drug overdose. And that was about three years ago. And so he remained a threat. He remained, um, there was a, a big impeding to my healing. I couldn't do things like this. I couldn't really, I was on lockdown. My social media was on lockdown, all of it. I couldn't do any of this while he was alive. And so while his death was unfortunate and sad and all the things that I fought for so long to not actually happen, his death has given me the freedom to use my voice. And that's what I do. What made you sad about his passing? Was it just that he never turned? And you you did obviously love and care for him, even though he was behaving like such a monster. Just in the deepest guttural parts of my soul was just such a sadness. A, that he was not on the planet anymore, and B, that he's probably not with the Lord and that I would never get to see him again. And I really was hoping that there would be a redemption story. I wasn't sure that I ever wanted to marry, get, you know, marry him again, but I, but I certainly would have liked it to have been a better relationship. We spent 12 years together. I, I helped him raise his right. son. I was married to this man. I love this man. He, this is somebody's father. This is somebody's son. And as even though there's papers on divorce papers, that was my husband that died by himself in a hotel room with a needle in his arm. And so the emotions from that, Meg, were devastating. And it was just because it was just another loss. And for me, it was a shaking my fist in the face of God going, really? Another loss? You can take something else off this planet, even though I had no interaction with him. It, that wasn't the point. So it was tough. And then when his son died a couple years later of the same, that devastated me. That absolutely devastated me. And and we're talking, you know, Kevin, Kevin died of a drug overdose just barely two years ago. Wow. And, um, and so it was a journey. It was a journey with God. It, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 I struggle with God over the things that he doesn't do for other people. We, he and I don't have conversations about my own story, but why couldn't you fix these two because that was my family, you know? And so, and, and they were both gone in, in the course of two and a half years of each other from the same thing. Wow. And I, I know you had said you had a pretty good relationship with Kevin, with your son. Were you able to help him with the grief of his losing his father? I'm sure he was torn too, like watching all the things, but yeah, we walked that dad. together, and I was grateful for that. I was grateful for FaceTime. He had spent a stint in prison and um, had gotten out, and um, I had to find him. I was actually the one that found him. His mom reached out to me and said, we got, we can't find Kevin to let him know that his dad has died. And I still to this day don't know how I found him, but we walked it together, and there was some healing there. You know, I was I was a pretty strict mom to him, but at the end of the day, I was able to hear from him how much he loved me and how much good he took from his time with me as his mom. And uh, he was doing so well, doing so well. He was even head of a, of, of a halfway drug house. And the first time he, he relapsed as many, it was heroin, as is true with that drug, because he had been clean for over a year, he overdosed and left behind a 12-year-old son. And um, that was devastating. Still sit in that a little bit, actually. Very, very, very painful, the loss, the loss of a child, regardless of whether they're yours or not. Felt like, gosh, couldn't I have done something else? 
I'm sure listeners, you can see Amy has is such a beautiful person with a beautiful heart and she's been through so many things. We could probably make an episode out of each section of your whole story. Thank you for sharing about Kevin. I know you and I have talked before and you sent me a picture of Kevin because I wanted to just honor the memory of your beautiful son. Just want to encourage everyone to listen to her podcast Wednesdays with Watson. It's a great podcast to learn about PTSD. And as she shares her story, so much overcoming. I know I've been super encouraged and it's helped me to walk through some things in my past to listen and just be encouraged and have some tools. So, and Amy, thank you for sharing all these hard things as life is. I know some of those things are with you right there as well, but I also know that you are walking with the Lord. You have this beautiful life that he's given you. You're, um, you have so many good things that you're involved in. Catch us up to where you're at now. Thank you for that. So I am working on a man, a, a a book, which I'm almost done with. I have an agent waiting for it. And so there's that COVID. COVID had some things to say about that. Speaking of COVID, that is how Wednesdays with Watson podcast was born. I was really busy, you know, running my business and doing my life and writing before all this. And I had a friend that kept telling me, you should start a podcast. You should start a podcast. I was like, dude, I'm lucky I know how to turn my computer on. And no, I'm not interested enter March of 2020 and about took my business and my career away. I was laying in my hammock one one day and looked up into the sky and said, now what, God? And he said, about that podcast. And so I got out of my hammock. It was April in Florida, which you're always outside in April in Florida and bought a microphone before the rest of the world did and climbed in, not this closet that I'm in now, but the one in my other bedroom with the AC unit, which I quickly learned is not good to record podcasts. I got behind that microphone and I started telling my story. And that is where season one of Wednesdays with Watson picks up. But how am I doing now? I am the beautiful, redeemed, precious daughter of the Most High God. This podcasting journey has enriched me with friendships like this, telling my story to, but I am living a life now of redemption and dealing with my own PTSD, still in counseling, still do life very, very, very closely with my community. I'm in counseling, but Jesus is the star of my story. He is the redeemer of it all. Just like the rest of us, I am taking it one day at a time. I don't understand the questions that people ask me, how could you love a God who would allow somebody to lock you in a room or a serial killer to do this? Or how can you do that and still love God? And the answer to that question is that's an ability only God can give us to love him even through that. And I do. I'm deeply in love with Jesus. I am passionate about PTSD education and about learning everything I can to help other people. I love Jesus. I love podcasting. I love telling my story. I love writing and I love Jaguars football. There's that. We always have to add that into any podcast. (laughs) Is there a verse that sums up your story? I will give you on that one my life verse, Philippians 1 verse 12, where Paul says, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have really happened to further the gospel. That is my life verse. It is a verse that means a lot to me because it makes sense of all the craziness. Paul, who we all know had been through so much, he said, it's all just been a vehicle for the gospel. And so that's my life verse. Amen. Before we seal up the envelope on this story of encouragement, I have prepared bonus material for you that we like to call the PS. Sure to make you smile and be moved within your heart as you see a bit more of the heart and personality of our guest. Here is your PS. Alrighty, are you ready for some bonus questions? 
Let's go. Bonus questions are rough. All right. Amy, what, what makes you smile? Water. I live on a peninsula, and that was one of God's finer moments is being on the water. That just seals the deal that you're coming to Seattle because I live in the Puget Sound area. Water everywhere, Amy. Just not in the wintertime. <laughs> Amy, what does the average person not know about the restaurant world? I know that's where your business has been, and I just thought you could give us an inside scoop. I loved this question when you sent it to me. There's a lot that people don't know about the restaurant world. So for so so basically, the restaurant industry, let me tell you the positive part first. The restaurant industry is an industry with somebody with not even a high school diploma can support a full family. Like there is opportunity aplenty there. But the other sad part about the restaurant industry, and this is really where I connect it with some purposes, it is an industry filled with drama and drug and alcohol abuse. And so what I get to do for my day job often gives me the opportunity to minister to people. But the restaurant industry is a crazy industry. It's a tight knit community, but it is often a hurting community and drug addiction and, and alcohol aplenty. What would you say is the greatest need in the church today? First of all, we need to stop hating on the church for, for not yes. paying attention to mental health. I think that they are moving in great strides and great directions to, to do that. The greatest need that I see, I think that we as a church, and, I, and I'm saying the big C church, so not the building, we as the church have to remember that we are ambassadors of Christ. And so the greatest need of the church needs to continue to be, how did Jesus handle? So in my, in my vein is, is mental, mental wellness or mental illness. And so, and, 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 I, and one of my abuses did come at church. But I think that in 2021, where this is also evident, we don't need to keep beating up on the church like that. The greatest need of the church is people like you and people like me, people that will get behind microphones and keyboards and podiums and proclaim the good news of the gospel as simple as we can, because that's what the hurting hearts of people need. It's amazing how much hate there is on the church about so many things. I don't know what it is, if it's social media or the modern era, but it's like, what, well, what are the positive things, too, that we are seeing in the church, right? So, Amy, I know you are a writer and an author. Tell us about your book. So the book I started about 10 years ago. And I named it Blindsided by Healing because I hate to be blindsided and I have been blindsided by healing. So the duality of the words there, a little play on words. About three years ago, I placed second in a Writer's Digest contest. And when I did that, I got an agent who asked me to continue writing it and then enter COVID. And here we are where all the creativity went into basically podcasting. But I tell people that what I have written already will never see the light of day because that manuscript needed to heal because so did I. So I'm still in the process of writing that. But I, I write quite frequently on my blog. I do some freelance writing. I'm getting ready to write something for the for the PTSD Foundation. And so I'm always writing. I always have since I was a little kid. But I am hoping to be published in the near future. And you will. And I'm excited. And I will be purchasing the book and sharing it on socials. I'm excited. You'll be, you'll and... be one of the 10 people to buy it, is what you're telling me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll... <laughs> I'm pretty sure it'll be more than 10, maybe 10,000. Let's just pray for that. And then your podcast, Wednesdays with Watson. What do you have coming up? I would love new listeners, by the way. So the first two seasons, the first season was called PTSD Jesus and Me. That's my story. The season that we just ended is PTSD, Jesus, and You, and it's the stories of a bunch of other people. And then season three, and actually this is literally the first place I will announce this, is Trauma and Spaces and Places. And we're going to start with Trauma Ooh. in the Home, 
and we're going to have a well-rounded guest roundup for trauma and the home. And then we'll talk about trauma and the workplace and trauma and all the places and all the spaces. And so that'll be season three. Still, I, I have a, a divided um, listenership in that when I look at my numbers, people tend to prefer my solo episodes. Those are not the ones that I, I, I prefer because they're more work, as you know. And so it'll be a mix of interviews and solo episodes because the people have spoken on the solo episodes. And so, but season three will be trauma and spaces and places, but still very educational, still bringing on professionals, still bringing on stories of hope from the crooked roads of, of pain and despair. So that's season three. That's great. I'm excited. I'm so excited. I know you're busy, so busy podcasting, and that's such a huge ministry. If you had limitless time and talents, what other ministry would you like to participate in or start? I'm a little nervous to answer this question because Isaiah 6, 9, said, God said, who will ascend and who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And um, I actually prayed that prayer when I was a little kid. But Meg, I have always had a heart for Haiti and a heart for New York City. And I would love to support both of those places and bring Jesus into those places and spaces if I ever got the chance to do so. Oh, that'd be great, right? And New York, yeah, New York is a very special place. You never know how God's going to guide those desires. I know you love God's word. And as you reflect on his word, is there a character in the Bible that you most admire or relate to? Yes, John the Baptist. And the reason why I love John the Baptist is because John the Baptist got the privilege of being the forerunner of Christ. He got to baptize Jesus. He got to hear the father talk about the son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Yet later we see John the Baptist out on a rock in prison. All the disciples are coming back and saying all these things that Jesus is doing. And John the Baptist says, well, can you go back? Now, keep in mind, this is somebody who had done life with Jesus, who had seen miracles, who had been chosen as the forerunner of Christ. But yet his faith had gotten in such a crisis like mine did, where John the Baptist said to the disciples, would you go ask Jesus, are you coming? Are you the long awaited one or should I expect somebody else? And I just love the authenticity of John the Baptist. And so he's my favorite Bible character. He is pretty amazing. That's that's cool. How are you feeling about your mom now? When you look back on that time, do you feel resolved now and do you feel forgiveness? For sure, for sure, for sure. After she died, I dealt with such grief and guilt of not forgiving her that that was a lesson that I learned very early in my life about, about forgiveness. In about six years, she, I will be the age that she was when she died. And so now when I look in the mirror, I see her a lot because now I'm the age that I remember her mm -hmm. as. Now my feelings towards my mama is, I'm so sorry whatever happened to you to make you behave like you did whatever context you didn't have, which is confusing because my, my mom came from a very Southern affluent family. My grandfather was a three-star general in the army. But yes, my heart now to her is bent towards like, what, what did you go through to make you unable to be my mom? I found a letter the other day that she had written me that I didn't get until after I graduated from high school, but I was in a car accident in high school and, and they did, they did let me talk to her briefly. Anyway, she, she wrote me a letter telling me that she had gotten saved. And so these days, wow, yeah. Yeah. So these days I, I think about her and I, I can't wait to spend eternity with her in a perfect world. And I doubt that I'll ask her any questions, but she'll get to be my mom and I, yeah. and I'll get to it. It will, you know, all things will be made new. That's one of my favorite Bible verses, revelation 21. Amen. Five. 
And so all things will be new one day. And so, yeah, I've worked through that with her. I've even worked through it with John. Death will do that to you, listeners, for people that have hurt you out there. When they die, it does a number on you. Don't wait for that to happen because that's what I did. I've forgiven both of them. Forgiven all of them. And I don't say that flippantly, but it is the reason I can live in freedom. Wow. Yeah. And that's a lot of healing, a lot of, a lot of Jesus, and I'm sure some therapy and counseling in there too. That's, that's amazing. Did, you know, one yep. person you hadn't mentioned was, was your dad ever in the picture? And did you ever hear about your dad from your mom? Yeah, very, very astute. My, my dad died when I was seven. I have very little memory of him but he was a raging alcoholic and died of his fifth heart attack. He was never, I don't have a negative memory of him at all. And I connected with some kids he had by his first wife later on in life and learned that he was outgoing and gregarious and smart and all the things, but he was an alcoholic. And because of that, he died. Gosh, he was 58, 59 when he died. So both of them died at almost the same age. Within the next decade, I will have outlived both of them. Wow, that's crazy. You've said so much that you felt uh, unwanted and unloved. I'm sure it's a struggle for you. Is it something that you feel resolved about now? No. No. Mm-hmm. Is it it's like one of those struggles? What do you what do you say to yourself when you're struggling with that? I actually there's nothing that I can say to myself. I am so so fortunate in that I live with a community of people. I call them my core four. Now, I absolutely still very much struggle with with feeling wanted and loved for who I am, not for what I do. Not that anybody is messaging me that. It's just that I've always earned approval of others by doing stuff and by being good at stuff and by having a, a, a you know, a gregarious outgoing personality. People tend to flock to me. Uh, you know, if I'm in a room, trust me, you know it because I'm going to make sure you know it. And so, but I still very much struggle with that fear of being unwanted and unloved. And so I have a handful of, of people in my life that, and, and you're one of them. We had to we had to reschedule this podcast three times that I can remember, maybe four. Mm-hmm. And there was never any judgment and and I didn't have to worry. Meg doesn't like me because you had established very early as you yourself have survived a, a fair amount of trauma. So you get it. But it, if people don't establish themselves in my life and I know that they're going to stay, that is still very something, very, very much something that I, that I live with. And, and uh, unless the Lord takes that away that I don't think that'll change. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she goes into that in her podcast. So good. Some other things I learned just about the brain. Amy has such a heart for that. And you, I know you'll glean some great, great things. Amy, what would you say is the great message and theme of your life? Hope. Hope is the anthem, as Switchfoot says. Hope, 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 anthem. hope, 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 and more hope. Awesome. There is hope. You can have this story and still thrive. Amen. Has the p- pandemic changed your worldview? I woke up on January 1st, 2020. Uh, we were at Disney World, Walt Disney World. And the night before, I literally laid in my bed because I could see the Disney World fireworks from my bed. I woke up January 1st, 2020 with this weird sense of urgency. Like God telling me, Amy, you need to go live on mission. You need to go live on mission. You need to go live on mission. And I just kind of dismissed it. I didn't think much more about it. Enter March of 2020. Then I realized what that my word for that year, and I never pick a word, and I never will again, <laughs> but my word for that year was expectant. 
because I knew that God had something for me. There was a sense of urgency, Meg, in my spirit that people needed to know about Jesus. I wasn't sure how that was going to happen. So yes, the pandemic changed my worldview, but God was kind of teeing that up before we knew about the pandemic. It was probably here. I have a heart more than ever for the people. And maybe like you said, at social media, clubhouse, all the things where you actually hear the visceral stuff come out of people's mouth as it pertains to God. It is the reason why I get behind microphones now. There was an old, old song. Look it up. The lyrics are beautiful called People Need the Lord. Every day they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes. They just, people need the Lord. This is the last question, Amy. What would you say is the great message and theme of your life? I think that if you open your Bible and you look to Joel 2, verse 25, you see my picture right beside it, where <laughs> God tells us, I will restore all the years that the locusts have stolen. So the great theme of my life is one of my favorite bands, Hope is the Anthem. There is hope. There is healing. Because we are seen, we are known, we are heard, we are loved, we are valued by the God of the freaking universe. I trust you are encouraged as much as I am by Amy's faith. How remarkable to overcome such a different, difficult childhood. And those things stay with us. It's such a part of who we are. And there's times in our lives when we just can't see past that hard story. I love how Amy now, from more of a bird's eye view, though she still struggles at times, but she can see how the Lord was there for her hard childhood and marriage and all the difficult things that she's been through and how he has become the hero of her story. I'm praying for us today that whatever hard things you are going through, I'm going through, we would know that there's a different view that can take us out of that perspective. As a podcast listener, do you sometimes struggle with where should I listen? Which app on my phone was I at or where was I? Struggle no more. Letters from Home Podcast has our own app in the Google Play and Apple App Store. And guess what? It's free. Just search Letters from Home Podcast in the search bar in your phone's app store and click download. How about that? Then all of our everyday extraordinary faith stories will be right there in one easy place on your phone so you don't have to go searching anymore. You can just tap the rainbow icon and encouragement is on the way. Links from our guests will be in the show notes. For more everyday extraordinary faith stories, go to our website, lettersfromhomepodcast.com and click subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening to. 2 Corinthians 3.3 And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Until next time, go in peace. Thanks for listening. We just wanted to take a minute to let you know that just like you and your family, Purposely is also part of a family, the Krista Family of Ministries. Krista helps kids and teens learn and grow in their faith at King Schools and Miracle Ranch Camp. And Krista shares Jesus with people in the poorest, most remote places through World Concern. Krista Senior Living is a community of love and care, and Krista Media is a place of hope on the radio. God is changing lives through these five ministries, and Krista is on mission to share the good news of Jesus. 
to learn more, visit krista.org.